Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today we'll be talking about the Delphi documents that were recently released. This episode is going to be a little bit different than most because I'm not going to cover the full spectrum of the Delphi case, only what the documents detailed. The documents do give insight into the murders, but if you want a full breakdown, a few podcasts I recommend are Down the Hill, The Prosecutors, and The Murder Sheet. The work of The Murder Sheet podcast is actually why we have these documents at all. All of that being said, small talk sucks, so let's dive in. The documents state that Abby and Libby were dropped off near the entrance of the trails on February 13, 2017 at 1.49 p.m. By 2.13 p.m., a video from one of the girls' phones showed a man walking behind them on the high bridge. He was wearing jeans and a dark jacket. As the man gets closer, investigators believe that you can hear the sound of a gun being cycled and one of the girls saying the word gun. Towards the end of the video, the man is seen and heard telling the girls, guys, down the hill. For years, a still photo of that man walking behind them and that short clip of him telling them to go down the hill was the only hint to the public as to who might be responsible for their murders. The girls were found deceased the following day near that bridge, which was an old abandoned railroad trestle. The documents state that their clothes were found south of their bodies in the Deer Creek. In between their bodies, police found an unspent 40 caliber bullet. It says the bullet was found less than two feet away from one of the victims, so doing the math, it sounds like they were probably found less than four feet apart from one another. Knowing they had heard the sound of a gun cycle on that video, you have to wonder if that unspent bullet came from that moment. If the gun had already been cycled, cycling it again would cause that bullet to fall out of the side. Police interviewed several different witnesses who were on the trails that day, including three juveniles who were out walking around at the same time as Abby and Libby and this mystery man. The juveniles actually saw the man and all agreed that he seemed creepy and kept his head down with his hands in his pockets. They all said hi to him, probably out of pure politeness and maybe some awkwardness when you're passing somebody on a trail, but they said that he didn't respond, that he just glared at them. One of the juveniles said that he seemed to be walking with a purpose like he knew where he was going. 
other witnesses recalled seeing a vehicle parked oddly at the CPS building nearby, parked almost as if they were trying to conceal their license plate. The description of the car was a little bit wonky and changed depending on who you were talking to. It went from a purple PT Cruiser to a small SUV and even possibly a smart car. We all know that eyewitness testimony can sometimes be a little bit unreliable because memory is relative, but the bottom line here was that there was a vehicle parked oddly enough at that CPS building that several people noticed its position even if they couldn't remember the exact description of the car. Later in the day, a witness recalled seeing a muddy and bloody man walking away from the bridge. She said he was wearing jeans and a blue jacket just like the man in that video. Judging by surveillance footage from a local store, which was used to verify different parts of her account, it looks like she saw him around 3.57 p.m., which would have been about an hour and a half or so after the girls were ordered down the hill. Video footage from that store was able to lead police to other people who were on the trail that day, and one of those people was Richard Allen, the man who has since been arrested for these murders. He was interviewed all the way back in 2017 when all of this happened. Investigators learned that Richard had been on the trail between 1.30 and 3.30 p.m. that day, so the timeline definitely fits. He told police that he had seen three females while he was on the bridge, but didn't remember much about them other than one of them was tall and another one had either brown or black hair. He said he didn't speak to them and wasn't paying much attention at all because he had been looking at his stock ticker on his phone. Richard told police that he didn't take any pictures or videos while he was there. Looking deeper into Richard, police learned that he drove a black 2016 Ford Focus and a gray 2016 Ford 500. I honestly didn't know what a Ford 500 was, so if you're in the same boat as me, I'm going to save you a trip to Google. It's basically a very plain car, that is all. It is the least suspecting car of all time and not one that we'll be discussing, so let's keep going. It was Richard's focus that was seen on surveillance footage at 1.27 p.m., and it confirmed his account that he got to the trail at around 1.30. As we know, Abby and Libby's case went unsolved for far too long. But on October 13th of 2022, five years after the murders, Richard was brought in for questioning again, and I can only assume that he was shitting actual bricks. Richard recounted the same story he had back in 2017, but this time he added that he had sat on a bench at some point and watched some fish, which, okay, anywho, but then he mentioned a tiny little detail, and it was about where he parked. He said it was on the side of an old building. This is a really good example as to why police choose to keep certain details of cases to themselves because a vehicle parked oddly at a random building might seem wildly insignificant, but in this case, it was not. He also told police that he'd been wearing jeans and a blue or black Carhartt jacket with a hood. Five years and a couple of interviews later, two box had just been checked. Richard also let detectives know that he did own guns and they were at his house. 
At this point, it almost seems like Richard's being too cooperative. Like, there's no way this guy's gonna tell police he was wearing exactly what the suspect was wearing in that video, and he just so happened to own guns that are at his house. What were the chances that he was the killer and still had the gun he used to kill them and was just telling police where they could find it? If he thought being cooperative might make detectives question his role in this, he was wrong. Because on that same day Richard was questioned, so was his wife. And just like Richard, she confirmed that they had guns at the house and he still owned a blue Carhartt jacket. That department was not in the business of fucking around at all. So that same day, police executed a search warrant on his house. They searched for a little over two hours and collected boots, jackets, jeans, hats, electronic devices, a flip phone, knives, guns, and bullets. One of the guns investigators seized was a Sig Sauer P226 40 caliber pistol with the serial number US625627. In summary, that gun basically looks like your everyday handgun if there is such a thing. The Sig Sauer was put through extensive testing between October 14th and October 19th, and the testing concluded that the markings that particular gun made on the bullets it used were a match to the unspent bullet found between Abby and Libby's bodies. Pretty damning evidence, but police had to confirm whether or not Richard was even in possession of this particular gun at the time of the murders. Thankfully, serial numbers are a very helpful tool, and it was determined that Richard had bought that gun 16 years prior to the murders in 2001. Richard was officially going to have a very hard time explaining any of this. On October 26, 2022, Richard voluntarily spoke to police again and let them know that he had never let anyone use his weapon. I love that police casually got him to admit that before letting him know that the unspent bullet they'd found between the girls matched the markings of a bullet that had been through that gun. Richard didn't even try to explain it when they did tell him and just said that he had been on the trail that day but insisted he was not involved in the murders. Evidence speaks louder than words, though, and two days later, on October 28th, Richard Allen was charged with two counts of murder and given a $20 million bond. He initially requested to find his own counsel, but in November, wrote a handwritten letter to the court begging for help finding an attorney because he couldn't afford one. He obviously had zero income while he was in jail and said that his wife had to leave her job and their home for personal safety reasons. Richard wrote, and I quote, I, Richard M. Allen, hereby throw myself at the mercy of the court. Granted, the only mercy he was asking for was the ability to get a court-appointed attorney, and he was assigned two of them. His defense went on to file for a change of venue, which is not a shock at all here. They're trying to find an impartial jury for a case that has essentially gone viral. You would be hard-pressed to find anyone who hasn't at least heard about this case, let alone locally. The prosecution and defense agreed to pull jurors from St. Joseph's County or Allen County and have the jury selection process take place in Carroll County. I foresee Wadir to be a pretty lengthy process in this case if it ever does go to trial. 
Richard has been on suicide watch the entire time he's been in jail, so he's been in a segregated unit. The cells in his unit all had cameras in them that recorded everything, and on April 3rd of this year, 2023, the cameras recorded a phone call that Richard made to his wife Kathy. During that call, court documents state that Richard admitted several times that he did in fact kill Abby and Libby. As soon as he told Kathy this, she hung up the phone. This phone call seemed to signify the complete and utter demise of Richard Allen. He went from an inmate who read a lot, did crosswords, and enjoyed his rec time, to an inmate who wet down his attorney paperwork and ate it. While he was free to eat his legal paperwork, he refused to eat regular food or sleep and went from making two phone calls a day to making zero. He also managed to break the tablet he used to make those calls. It looks like his attorney may have tried to blame the correctional facility for his behavior, even sending before and after pictures to show how Richard's physical appearance had changed since being in jail. Richard's before picture was this happy and free-looking dude hanging out with his chihuahua, while his after picture was Richard's jailed ass looking thinner and mopey in some shitty jail clothes rocking a stain on his shirt. For what it's worth, though, the documents state that Richard got the same amount of clean clothes every week as everyone else in his unit, and even had some extra clothes in his cell which he chose not to wear. And boo fucking who you lost weight in jail. There is an instant access to beer and chips every night, and I'm sure he might get a little stress tummy ache from the impending consequences to his accused actions. Accused actions he reportedly admitted to to his wife. The defense wasn't the only person in these documents who complained about treatment in the jail. Another inmate sent a letter to the courts alleging the same things. That letter was dated eight days after that confession-laced phone call. The inmate alleged that Richard was being abused and mistreated by corrupt officers. They claimed the officers were calling Richard a killer and would tease him, saying that he had a visitor or a phone call when maybe he didn't. The inmate also accused four other inmates of threatening to kill Richard and telling him to kill himself and doing that all in front of jail staff. This particular inmate went on a long spiel in this letter about all of the different agencies he'd reportedly reached out to to get justice for himself in the way that he had been treated in jail. Naturally, since he's in the same facility as Richard, I wanted to figure out what he was in there for and I wish I could turn back time. This inmate is one of the most disgusting human beings I have ever read about, and I feel physically incapable of feeling even an ounce of sympathy for him and will continue to feel that way until the end of end of time. Following the end of time, my ghost will continue to despise him. He's a sack of flaming rotting shit, and I'm floored that the details of this crime are even available on the internet. I would include his name in this episode, but I know you guys, and I know you're going to go looking for these documents that I'm talking about. And frankly, I don't want you to read anything that you can't unread. If you want to find out his name, it's out there if you look hard enough, but I do not recommend that you do that. Please trust me. It involves children. It is terrible. We hate him. 
Bringing this back to Richard, he wanted to be moved to another facility for who the hell knows why. Maybe they were looking for a way to discredit the jail as a whole so that if this does go to trial, that video can't be used in court. Or maybe they wanted to discredit his mental stability at the time the call was made because they know it is some damning ass shit. But those are all questions. We don't have the answers to them. The only thing we do know is that when he was given a mental health evaluation, two psychiatrists determined that he did not need involuntary medication. Magically, after that, Richard started eating and sleeping again. If there was a cosplay crazy plan in place, it ended there when it was determined he had not lost his entire damn mind. The rest of the documents were a lot of legal back and forth, jargon and big words, basically saying, please don't share this in the media, this can't be shared in the media, but in the end, all of this came out in the media. The top of the document state that they were obtained by Murder Sheet LLC, and the Murder Sheet podcast has covered the Delphi case over dozens and dozens of episodes. If there are any more documents released or there are any updates in this case, I will be sure to update you. For photos pertaining to this case and a link to the documents, check out the Delphi highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley. We go live there on Mondays and Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, so be sure to tune in. I love talking to you guys about these cases. To get access to ad-free and bonus episodes, subscribe to our Apple Premium or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you love the podcast, feel free to leave a review. It makes my day every single time. And if you have a case you'd like to hear covered, share it with Big Mad True Crime on social media because all cases are covered by listener request. I'll be bringing you a brand new case next week and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. We're officially at the end of this episode and usually I share a review that made my day, but it's been a busy week and I forgot to ask my husband for screenshots. So I'm just going to talk about how much I love you guys. You're the best. I love that we have found a community of people who just care. We have seen a bunch of posts in the Big Mad True Crime Facebook group. Uh, it's an article that's like, oh, it's a warning sign if you fall asleep listening to true crime documentaries. But I don't know. I feel like you guys just have the biggest hearts in the world and you're capable of caring for people outside of your circle. You feel for these people. You want to fight for these people. And I think that makes you pretty freaking awesome. So I love knowing you. I love being a part of your day and I appreciate you more than you know. I hope you never forget that you guys are the best. This podcast would be nothing without every single one of you. So, okay, I love you.